Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WAB in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright says thank you for listening. This Saturday, Synchronicity Theater and the Bronze Lens Film Festival will showcase four short films that explore what it means for lives to take flight. We'll hear from Synchronicity's artistic director, Rachel May, and Deirdre McDonald, the artistic director of Bronze Lens, about the soaring aspects of these films. Kevin Gillies of Dad's Garage and the team behind How to Ruin the Holidays raised more than their original goal for their film via Kickstarter. The cast includes Colin Mockery, Amber Nash, and Aisha Tyler. The story centers on a character with a developmental disability played by a special needs actor, Luke Davis. Later this hour, Kevin Gillies tells us why he wants to give adults with special needs their own agency on screen, deal with real-world issues that are part of their lives, and do so in a comedic format. First, a native of India and former resident of Hong Kong, Arpita Chara started her vegetarian Indian food pop-up as a twist of fate during COVID-19. A previous IT job brought her to our city, but a quick pivot during the pandemic soon had her sharing some of her family's favorite recipes. Under the name East Atlanta India Company, Arpita's home cooking is now known as some of the best vegetarian Indian food in the city. She joins us now via Zoom. Arpita Chara, welcome to City Lights. Hi, Lois. Thank you so much for having me here. It is such an honor. Well, it is a delight to have you, although I confess the prep has not only stimulated my appetite, but made me crave a delicious vegetarian samosa, one of my favorite snacks. 
I actually never really was into samosa. So one of my aunts, my dad's sister, and we called her baby Bua. She used to get these samosas for us. Those were the only samosas that I've ever loved. Well, you point out something important. India is so vast and the population so great that there is no such thing really as Indian cooking. There's regional cooking and each region has its own dishes and the people in each region have very specific tastes. What we experience in the U.S. and I imagine in the U.K. and elsewhere is something of a composite of Indian dishes. Very true about the regional cooking. So some of the foods that I have cooked, and I always write about it, are from different regions that I have learned through other family members who've lived in different regions. And, you know, when we go to restaurants, we try and go to places uh, which offer more than just the North Indian cooking. So some of the foods that I learned while traveling across the country. So I try and bring all of that into my cooking. So you have a diverse set of offerings. I try and do that, yes. How has your life changed since you made the switch from IT to pop-up restaurant entrepreneur? So IT is still a little part of my life. I've always been passionate about technology. So right now I volunteer with the refugee nonprofits in Atlanta, where I help some of the refugees there to navigate in the world of IT. However, my life has changed quite a bit by, you know, cooking and serving locally. I've been able to get out in the community more. And for the first time, literally, I can stop and smell the roses. Ah. There, <laughs> there have been improvements in my own relationship with food because my job was just so hectic before this that I didn't really stop and prepare a meal for myself and actually enjoy it. So I've had a chance to do that. And the satisfaction that I would get from people when they would say that they've enjoyed my food is, is just incomparable. Hmm. Where do you market? There are very specific spices and fruits and vegetables required in Indian cuisine. I have had to travel all over the city, and I still do, to get ingredients. So I mostly go to the farmer's markets and the Indian stores mm -hmm. to get the ingredients. I think now I have a set routine, so it, it isn't that hard. But rice, for example, was one of the most difficult things to find here, surprisingly, because I wanted it to be exactly like what my mother cooked at home. So I went through a lot of varieties of rice from a lot of manufacturers to be able to find just the right one. Uh, now, speaking of your mother, what role did cooking have in your everyday family life growing up? So food is the most important part of growing up Punjabi. So if your alu gobi isn't good enough and your rotis <laughs> aren't round enough, we are told that we would never find a good Punjabi husband. Oh. So... <laughs> 
we talk about food from you know breakfast to dinner we're constantly planning our next meal and i have this very fond memory from childhood of my grandmother's house so when we were younger after school we would go to her house to eat lunch and she had this huge uh, tulsi tree which is indian mint just outside her window mm. and she would cook the simplest dal the simplest curries and serve it with fried bread puri and we would eat that on the floor oh punjab is in the north of india correct yes so how does the punjab cuisine differ from further south regions so some of the spices that are used in south and southwest are different from the northwest northern food is very heavy on ghee and butter mm. there is a spice it's called the stone flower it's a mushroom which is heavily used in the west, western and southwest southern cuisine i read that your brother-in-law is a michelin star chef do you ever feel any competition with him so my brother-in-law angshman is in london and he's designed menus all over the world both my sister and my brother-in-law have traveled to different parts in the world he's designed menus for different restaurants he understands food the way that no one else i have met ever does so there cannot be a competition <laughs> <laughs> i have um cooked a few of his recipes but it always takes a lot of cajoling to get him get them out of him ah but you can solve his it problems yes <laughs> i peter the indian food you cook is always all vegetarian and some is strictly vegan is that a family influence as well uh vegetarianism yes vegan not so much indians of all shapes and sizes honestly love ghee so my mother's side of the family is strictly vegetarian because of religious reasons so the food that we had at home was always vegetarian but my father's side of the family are omnivores so if we wanted to eat meats we would go to our aunt's houses <laughs> and they would cook it specially for us with the multiple religions and ethnicities within india how common is a vegetarian diet in the country is it possible to generalize I would say safely that two thirds of the Indian population right now would be vegetarians. Oh, yeah! There is just so much variety in vegetarian food that one doesn't really feel the need to eat meat. Even your regular American fast food chains like McDonald's have special and very delicious vegetarian menus. What would McDonald's in India serve that we'd never find here? They do amazing things with paneer, which is Indian cheese, and they have. Oh, I love it! Yes, so McDonald's has a replica of um, the Big Mac in paneer. Oh, I love it! <laughs> it is very popular. <laughs> Think how much healthier the rest of the world might be if they served that elsewhere. I know. <laughs> 
Arpita, in your blog, you tell stories about growing up with certain dishes as family favorites, with some of those dishes traditionally reserved for holidays or special occasions. What is your favorite special occasion food tradition? My favorite would be the meal that we ate at the end of this one festival that is celebrated for Goddess Durga. It is celebrated twice in the year. All the little girls for that festival become avatars of Goddess Durga. And we eat this combination of uh, puri, suji ka halwa, and kala chana, which is fried bread, semolina pudding, sweet semolina pudding, and black chickpeas. Mm. So we go to the houses in the neighborhood as little girls. We get this combination of food. And as offering towards Goddess Durga, they give us money and jewelry and very beautiful scarves, red scarves with golden embroidery on it. So that will always be my favorite meal for the holidays. (laughs) Okay. Can I tell you how much better that sounds than trick-or-treating for Halloween? (laughs) You're getting money in there. So as little children, you don't have that much pocket money from your parents. So we would look forward to the holiday. Yeah. And silk scarves. I mean, much as I love a peanut butter cup or (laughs) M&Ms, I mean, you can buy those yourself. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzis. Here with Arpita Chada, the chef and owner of the East Atlanta India Company. Arpita, you also point out in your writing that several of your own signature dishes are uncommon in the U.S., even at traditional Indian restaurants. What can you tell us about some of those uncommon dishes? Through my food, I want to share my culture and I want to share what we really eat at home. So some of the dishes like kathal masala, jackfruit curry, or dal palak, which is spinach with lentils, all of the koftas, koftas is a word for meatballs, vegetarian meatballs, methi malai paneer, which is fenugreek cream and paneer. So all of these dishes we would normally eat at home and are not served at restaurants over here. I am thinking about how labor-intensive Indian cooking can be. How does that fit into contemporary life with two members of a household, husband and wife or partners, both having full-time jobs? My mom had a full-time job, and she would do the cooking and while raising three children, and it was difficult. Back then, women were not very financially independent. So my mother was one of the pioneers for her generation to be trying to do all of it together. But these days, it's become easier wherein women's financial independence and jobs are supported by their partners. So it's both the husband and wife who would be involved in cooking these meals. Well, that's heartening to hear. (laughs) It's changed, and I'm glad it's changing for the better. Yeah, because it is labor-intensive, often beginning with the marketing that has to be done the morning of. Yes. I heard that one of your most beloved Indian dishes actually comes from Scotland, and that piqued my interest especially because the first time 
we visited Scotland, my husband and I were surprised to see curry as pub food on every menu. And we asked about it, and one of the Scottish pub proprietors said, curry is the most popular dish in Scotland, if not in the entire UK. Is that true? It is. And believe it or not, the most popular dish that we know as the Indian dish, paneer tikka masala or tikka masala, Mm -hmm. as people say, tiki masala here, uh, was invented in Scotland. (gasps) I know. (laughs) What's the Scottish twist on that? I hope it isn't haggis. With all due respect, I'm a Scottophile, love everything about the people, but couldn't bring myself to eat haggis. I don't think I've heard about that dish. Um, I should look into it more. Oh, or not. (laughs) Especially if you're vegetarian. It's stuffed sheep's guts. Oh, no. Yeah, you don't want want to know. But the tikka masala was a Scottish invention. It was invented in Glasgow, apparently on a very rainy night in somewhere in the 1940s. One of the things I loved seeing on the menu when we were dining in Scotland was, you know how on menus in the US you may see a little chili pepper or some such drawing to indicate the strength of spice. They don't say spicy, they said nippy. Ah, that's very English. I guess so, but I think of You know, when it's nippy outdoors, it's cold. I don't think heat with nippy. So that was sort of charming to read. One of the funniest parts in your blog posts is how you dissect the meaning of dishes' names. They all sound very exotic to the uninitiative. But would you give us a rundown of some of your literal translations? I really wish we were more inventive with our naming conventions, you know. So like aloo gobi translates to potato cauliflower. Dal panchmail, it's such an exotic sounding name, right? It literally means five lentils together. Butter paneer masala is butter cheese spice. So I think we like going with very simple naming conventions. And I, Indians believe when in doubt, add masala. Butter chicken <laughs> masala, paneer tikka masala, chana masala, which is literally chickpeas in spice. Masala is a combination of spices, is that correct? Yes, masala can be a combination of spices. It's a generic word that we use. It can be used for one spice. We use that, we say masala, garam masala, or lal mirch masala, which is red chili powder. It can be used for one spice and a combination of spices. And similarly, curry is not one spice, it's a combination of several, is it not? It is. And I think it has turmeric in it as one of the main ingredients, along with red chili powder and cumin powder. So do you use a conventional curry powder or do you bring your own mixture together? My mom makes all of her mixtures together. And that's what I have learned to do. How time consuming is that? You know, with all of the learnings that I've had in the last one year, I actually enjoy taking the time to do this. 
Oh. It takes me four or five hours to make one dish. And I enjoy all of the process that is involved in it, including making different spice powders and bringing it all together and adding it at different tra- times when I'm trying to make a curry. Do you think you will continue that when the pandemic ends? I will. I have enjoyed doing this very much. So that returning to IT is not in the cards. I may do that on the side, but what I want to do with this is find a more permanent place with East Atlanta India Company. I actually want to find a bigger space, but in this area, because I am very much grateful to the people of this community, East Atlanta Village, Omwood Park, Grand Park, Reynolds Town. And I want to have more opportunity to feed people from a bigger kitchen space. Oh, that's lovely. Also, it's kind of a nice twist on the name with East Atlanta India Company. It does bring to mind the East India Company, although that was so blatantly colonialist. It was. <laughs> it was. So there's a little bit of sarcasm in the name. But then I started in East Atlanta Village, so it just seemed like the right fit. It is. And I love that. I love the irony of that. Take yeah. that, colonialists. <laughs> We've got this cool neighborhood in Atlanta. That is true. Arpita, this has been absolutely delightful. I thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It has been a great experience. Arpita Chadha, owner of the East Atlanta India Company. You can learn more about Arpita and her vegetarian Indian cuisine on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Kevin Gillies stepped down as artistic director of Dad's Garage Comedy Theater in late 2019. Since that time, he's been involved with producing a film comedy featuring adult actors with special needs. Famous comedic actors Colin Mockery and Amber Nash share the screen with local actor and Special Olympics competitor Luke Davis. Luke is here now via Zoom with Kevin Galise. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you for having us, Lois. It's so great to be back with you. Thank you, Lois. Oh, great to have you here. Kevin, why is working with special needs actors particularly important to you? My younger brother has a developmental disability, and so um, I've just had a lot of exposure to that community and I guess a bit of a soft spot because I have such a personal connection. So when I first um, got the opportunity to work with Luke, um, I just was really inspired. He's a really, really great actor and just a great friend now. And so um, this is a very personal and special project for me. How long have you been working on putting together the feature-length films spotlighting actors with disabilities? Well, I guess... I guess about three years now, this project has kind of been coming together. Wow. 
Can you give us a synopsis of how to ruin the holidays? Uh, sure, yeah. This is a film about a comedian, a struggling comedian, who reluctantly returns home for the holidays, and she has to kind of deal with a very eccentric family, and it's kind of driving her nuts, but ultimately she has to face a life-changing decision uh, regarding her brother, who does have special needs. This film is a successor to the Dad's Garage TV short. That was awesome. Luke, please tell us what it meant for you to perform in that first film as a lead actor. That was a lot of fun, and it was such an honor to be part of that. So... I really enjoyed doing it and watching our finished product on the big screen when we had our world premiere at Dad's Garage and then later on at the MJCCA. Yeah, very exciting. And now you're going to be in this film with two comedy stars, Colin Mockery and Ember Nash. Yeah. Luke, would you describe your character in this film, How to Ruin the Holidays? I would say he's pretty much just like me, like my own personality except for of course with the drinking and smoking or doing <laughs> drugs but um, he's just a loving person and very affectionate and just wants to enjoy life and have fun as well as be able to be with his friends and family and he has a strong relationship I'd say with his sister as well as his dad. It sounds like that's very much you except for the bad habits <laughs> of smoking and drinking too much. I'm glad that, that your character has the best of your qualities and you don't have the worst of his. <laughs> right. <laughs> Kevin, you address serious topics, employment issues, parental death. How do you balance those themes with comedy in this movie? Well, you know, Lois, I've always felt like the best um, work uh, has the strongest contrast within it. So if you want to tackle really weighty issues, then in my opinion, it's always best if you can do that with a lot of laughter and joy mixed in as well. So that's what I really tried to do with this project is create something that kind of ping pongs, you know, in one moment, there might be a really kind of serious, um, important conversation happening. And the next, you know, it's hijinks, right? <laughs> <laughs> I read that you plan to produce the entire film with a budget of only $150,000. That sounds like a huge undertaking. How can you achieve that? 
Well, a lot of the people that are coming on board, you know, like Amber and uh, Colin, and uh, I know this wasn't in the press release, uh, but it, it's kind of more of a late breaking. Henry Zabrowski from Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell has uh, signed on to the cast as well. But with all of these folks coming on board, they're working for the lowest legal amount that they're allowed to so that they can support the production. They want to see people like Luke get a platform. Uh, and so they're kind of coming on board to support. So that really helps. And that kind of goes its way down throughout the whole team, whether it's the directors, producers, uh, a huge amount of our team are basically doing this as a labor of love because they want to see neurodiversity represented, you know? That's great. This question is for both of you. How will this film help audiences better understand people with special needs? I feel like I have a, a different perspective to share because I grew up with my brother who's got a developmental disability and and so I just have a kind of a unique perspective on it. I think a lot of times in film and TV, we get kind of a really standardized portrayal, you know? What do you think are the biggest misconceptions of people with disabilities that you see on TV and film? Well, just like any group of people, there's a spectrum of personalities. And yet for some reason, when we go into the world of film and TV, we just get one personality, which is kind of the very loving, very sweet, blink, blink, couldn't hurt a fly. And of course that personality type is out there. I'm not denying that, but it's not uh, really reflective of like the, the breadth of personality type. And so that's why in ours, you know, uh, we've got a character who curses. Uh, he drinks, you know, it's kind of some of these behaviors that you're not used to seeing. But from my experience in real life, that's real. So you believe this film can help audiences understand that people with special needs are not to be treated as young children. That's really what I'm trying to show. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Luke? Do you see that in the script? Yeah, I mean, I would say definitely that he's treated just like everybody else and that even though he is autistic like I am, that they don't look at him that way. They just see him as one of them, basically that he's no different than they are. And that's how it should be, whether you are special needs or not, that you're still human. You deserve to be treated with respect and as an adult. Yeah, that's right. Kevin, I think it's fantastic that you and... Amber, Colin, Luke are involved in what sounds like it will be a fantastic film. Wishing you loads of luck, and I can't wait to see How to Ruin the Holidays. 
Uh, well, thank you for the support, Lois, and uh, I hope all your listeners will go to howtoruintheholidaysmovie.com if they want to support this type of project being made. That's Garage, improv artist, director, and writer Kevin Gillies with actor Luke Davis. You can find out more information about How to Ruin the Holidays on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This Saturday, Synchronicity Theatre will host a showcase of short films that explore what it means for lives to take flight. The SOAR film series is a partnership with the Bronze Lens Film Festival, which begins this weekend. City Lights producer Summer Evans recently spoke with the festival's artistic director, Deirdre McDonald, and Synchronicity's founder and artistic director, Rachel May. Through this pandemic, Synchronicity Theater has been able to safely and successfully stay open. Rachel, how has the theater pivoted in order to accommodate CDC guidelines while staying up and running? We decided really early on last year that we wanted to lean very hard into our mission and continue to put artists to work and to continue to uplift women's voices and put art out there throughout the pandemic. And so we decided the only way to do that was to do it very safely. And we partnered along with 17 other theaters in Atlanta, we partnered with the Nell Hodgins School of Nursing over at Emory. And they developed a really rigorous safety protocol that we implemented. And we successfully have produced six shows in the past year with live actors and fully realized design elements. Um, We have had some very tiny contained audiences of up to 20, and we made it work. And uh, we're really proud that we were the first theater in Atlanta to start doing work, which we did in October 2020 and have, you know, kept artists working all year round. That's amazing. And will some of those restrictions loosen up with the upcoming events that are going to be in person this month? Yeah, so we have increased our audience. Also, again, per CDC guidelines and city and state guidelines, we look at all of that in our protocols, but we have increased our seating to 50. We are maintaining masking for now, and we are currently reviewing what things might look like in September. Gotcha. Can you talk about Synchronicity's partnership with Fathers Incorporated? 
Absolutely. We did two events with them. One was we screened Spit and Anger, which was made by Kenneth Braswell, the founder of Fathers Incorporated. Um, and we did that at the theater. And it was a really amazing, powerful film looking at sort of how anger translates into brokenness in families and how we can heal from that. And then we also did a Tony talk, which is uh, part of our year long series of Tony talks, where we looked at black fathers then and now using um, scenes from the bluest eye as a starting point, and then having a really rigorous and wonderful discussion with Kenneth about what Fathers Incorporated is doing in that space to um, resource and build up fathers. That's incredible. Deirdre, for those unfamiliar with the Bronze Lens Festival, how would you describe it? Fabulous. <laughs> no, of course. I guess I'm, uh, what is it, biased. This is a festival by and about people of color. That doesn't mean that non-people of color can't participate, but their subject matter has to be regarding people of color. What we provide for audiences are untold stories, things that they haven't seen by diverse voices. And uh, we just closed our submissions and we had entries from over 52 different countries. And wow. yeah, it's really awesome. Everything from Afrofuturism to historical pieces, modern day pieces, webisodes, music videos, you name it, we've got it. Wow, you got a wide range. Yes. It's just so hard to choose what we're actually going to screen our panels this year will show the diversity that we're all about. That's our intention for it, just to be obvious. The theme of the short film festival this Saturday is centered on what it means for people's lives to take flight. And it's perfectly named SOAR. Can either of you elaborate on that theme and how it's demonstrated in each of the films presented? We were looking at what might be a sort of centering idea. And actually the, the piece Flight sort of helped uh, suggest this idea is this notion of, you know, how do each of these stories look at ways that they exceeded or explored or, or transcended difficult spaces or spaces where they, you know, were trying to sort of move from and to a new place. And so that notion of soaring out of adversity or soaring out of the circumstances they were in sort of seemed like a really good fit for, for each of the pieces that we're looking at. Oh, Deirdre, what else do you think? Well, Bronze Lens is bringing three films to the table. They include Black Korea, and that was directed by Christine Swanson. And it's based on a true story by Patty Kim Gill, who is a filmmaker based here in Atlanta. And she had told me there's a lot of African-Americans that are mixed with Asian and uh, Pacific Islanders. And it's a period piece. It's set in the 80s in Chicago. And a uh, Korean mother is bringing her children to her mother-in-law. She has untenable relationship with her husband and she's got to go. It's almost like she's taking flight. It's so well done. I do think it's interesting that Patty Gill was, when she was deciding that she wanted to tell her story and her family's story, she started to wrestle with it. I read in one of the articles about her kids were trying to understand her heritage and sort of who she was. They couldn't quite put her in either 
you know, is she Korean? Is she black? What is her, you know, what is her ethnicity? And so it was in like having to field her kids questions that she really started to wrestle with that herself. Um, and then that led to desire to tell her story. And um, it's interesting that one of the cast members, he also has a child with a Korean and black woman. And so she said she was talking about how it was really interesting that this project came together without sort of intentionally trying to do that, but with all these people who had that really personal connection that deals with that intersection between those two identities and that that's, that was complicated for her. And um, so in the storytelling, it tries to wrestle with that a bit too. Yeah, that is, that is really cool that they all could relate to this one thing that they were working on together. Yes, definitely. And then the other one that we're bringing is the ball method. And that was actually a student film, but it was so outstanding. It was uh, directed and written by Dagmawi Abebe. And it's about Alice Ball, who at only 23 years old, she was an African-American chemist and she was living in 1915 in Hawaii. And she finds the cure for leprosy and she doesn't get the credit for it. And it reminds me so much of Hidden Figures. So it's just so amazing that uh, this is somebody that is totally off the radar. So I am so glad that he did that particular film. And then the other one that we're bringing is uh, Flight. I call that a gem of a short. It's uh, done by Kia Moses. She was uh, the writer as well as the director for it. And it's, I think, virtually an all-female crew. And it uh, takes place in Jamaica. And it's about a boy who aspires to go into space. And so he's making a space suit out of cardboard and all kinds of scraps and things and going up to his roof. And there's a reason why he's doing all that. It's such a beautiful short. And so that's what we're bringing. And uh, Rachel, if you could talk about Glitch. Yeah, so Dance Canvas partnered with Georgia Tech's Dr. Francesco Fideli as part of their Science Art Wonder program over at Tech. And uh, they were inspired by the allegory of Plato's Cave. And they took um, the choreographer, Thulani Verin, and Dr. Fideli came together to look at the notion of sort of what is the true nature of being and how do we sort of journey from where we are to where we aspire to be. So it's a, and it uses movement as a way to tell that story from a, from a choreographer dancer perspective. So it's a really interesting collaboration between art and science um, and, and philosophy and about sort of our existence. So I'm so excited to watch all these four films together. I think it's gonna be a really, really interesting evening. No, it's, it sounds like an amazing lineup. It's very engaging and such a wide range that all touches upon the same theme of flight in different ways. And Summer, I would like to say that all of these are 20 minutes or less. So we see a lot in that amount of time. If you're just joining us, I'm City Lights producer Summer Evans, and I've been speaking with Synchronicity Theater's artistic director, Rachel May, along with Bronze Lens Film Festival artistic director, Deirdre McDonald, about their upcoming SOAR film series this weekend. Will there be live producers and directors at Synchronicity Theater, or will all these talkbacks be virtual? 
So we will have one of the filmmakers there live and then one or two on Zoom with us projected during the discussion because a couple of them are in different places around the country right now doing projects and they are not all based here, although I guess two of them are based here and two of them are based elsewhere. Uh Gotcha. In the Ball Method, you talked about Alice Ball and the contributions, the significant contributions she made to the medical community. In the Ball Method, how does it showcase the adversities she faced when creating this treatment? Uh, She was the only person of color that was dealing with this. And leprosy, as you know, was just a plague and it was so dangerous and there were leper colonies. She was not supported really by the people uh, that were the scientists and the doctors there. And they weren't really visibly taking what she said into account. But it's very interesting when she came up with uh, what could heal people, they took the credit for it. Fortunately, now she's been recognized and there's even a building on some campus in Hawaii that has her name on it. But initially, she did not get credit at all. Oh, that's incredibly sad. But I'm Mm -hmm. happy that there's a film that can showcase this hero, you know, that helped save so many lives. And it's also sad that she was uh, 23 when she came up with that. And she didn't live much longer. She didn't have a long life. Well, it's interesting, too, that that the filmmaker, uh, he was reading a book about just some stories and found her grandfather, who was a photographer, and he had taken photos of African-Americans daily lives at the time. And he, in a paragraph, it mentioned that his granddaughter had found a treatment for leprosy. And so he was like, wait a minute, what? (laughs) (laughs) And started researching. Um, And that was how he found, you know, found her story and found her and sort of, and and wrote the story for the film. Oh, that's incredible. I'm, I must say to show you, as I said before, he uh, submitted as a student and we get outstanding student submissions as well. Um, But he won't be able to join us because he's going to be at Tribeca. He's part part of the, uh, I know it's like, (laughs) hey, we have a eye on him. He's going to definitely be somebody to watch. And I will say about flight, um, that excited me when uh, Deirdre suggested that because we've partnered a good bit in the past two years with the Jamaican and Caribbean community here in Atlanta because we produced in our family series, we produced Bob Marley's Three Little Birds, which is a really wonderful story based on Sadella Marley's book um, and all the music in it is Bob Marley songs. And so, uh, and it's for kids and families. And so we had a great time working with that community, working on that project. And so the idea where we could, you know, showcase this Jamaican film um, and bring this story to light. And especially because, again, it's about a little boy. So we're excited to hopefully share that with some of our folks who may have seen Three Little Birds so that they can, you know, get another look at a story from that culture. Yeah, definitely. And Rachel, can you talk about Synchronicity Theater's Playmaking for Girls and how does that program help female teen artists? We are a theater whose mission is to uplift the voices of women and girls. And we do a lot of community engagement projects around our work. And long, long time ago, about 18 years ago, we did a play about girls and gangs. And 
we wanted to find a way to give back to girls who were struggling um, during that project. And that led to us <laughs> inadvertently founding a program that is now still with us 18 years later. Um, we thought it was just going to be sort of a one-off event. And we went into a detention center and we did a, a two-day play workshop with the girls who were detained. Um, and they wrote, rehearsed, and performed short plays together over those two days. And when we left, our artists and our, you know, everyone there at the facility, we all said, this is amazing. We have to keep doing this. So that was when Playmaking for Girls was born. It has gone on to grow and change a lot of ways over the past 18 years. And now we work in group homes and with um, girls in the refugee community. And we bring together those two groups um, throughout the year in workshops where they write plays and then perform them. And then in the summer, which is what we're gearing up toward in the end of June, we do a performance where we take the best plays written over the last year that the girls wrote and we rehearse for a week. And then we do a full performance where they have costumes and set and lights and all of that. This is in normal times. And then we tour the show for a couple of performances. This year, we're gonna stick one more year with a virtual performance, which is what we did last June, but people are welcome to attend and that's on June 24th. So we are excited about that. And we're, we're sending the girls little packages of ring lights and you know fun fun backgrounds for the show and and uh, some things like that and and Chick-fil-A gift cards so they can get ice cream afterward and you know so we're trying to get the live experience in as much as possible with the virtual event but you know the way it uplifts these young women they may not be artists in training although oftentimes we spark that and inspire that but we use theater as a way to empower these young women and help them tell their stories, to know their stories matter, to develop some really basic, wonderful life skills around eye contact and communication and ensemble building and building each other up and supporting one another, all the things theater just does beautifully. And they come out of it hearing that their stories are um, valuable and validated and that um, they matter in our community and that they can create something that is powerful and beautiful and feel really proud of that. So it's, it's a, it's a program that's very near and dear to our hearts. That sounds like an amazing program. So happy you guys have that at Synchronicity. Lastly, the Bluest Eye is rescheduled to be on the stage at the end of September. How did these events in June correlate with that show? When we had to move the Bluest Eye from 2020 June, we decided to create an entire year of Bluest Eye experiences leading to that show. And so we've been doing these Tony Talks um, in partnership with the Metro Atlanta chapter of the AKAs. And each one has used Toni Morrison's work and sometimes often from the bluest eye, but from some other sources as well, to be a spark for conversations around different topics. And so we did one right before the October 5th deadline um, to register to vote, where we worked on um, advocacy and agency and um, worked with a couple of groups who um, do that sort of work. And then in February, we did one about um, mothers and daughters and um, had Dr. RJ Verwain, who is a psychologist who works with teens, talk about some of the issues that mothers and daughters face. Um, and we used some scenes from Bluest Eye to get that conversation going. And then we partnership with Fathers Incorporated and we did one talking about Black fathers using the way fathers are represented in the bluest eye as a starting point. And then Kenneth from Fathers Incorporated talk about how we can sort of draw forward to the now and, and better resource and support uh, fatherhood in this moment. And 
For those who are unfamiliar with Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, how would you describe it? Hmm. <laughs> Deirdre, you, that hmm sounds like you might have a description. <laughs> oh, it's just absolutely stunning. It's about a little girl growing up. She wishes she had blue eyes. And I will, I read that when I was in college and I always remember the line that her braids were like lynch ropes. Yeah. Uh, oh my God, that's unforgettable. And um, so it talks about her trying to navigate looking how she looks. Yeah. And it's really powerful in that it deals with amongst the young girls. All of the girls have different skin tones and there's a lot of discussion about colorism. And there's one girl who's very light skinned and they all are, you know, super envious of her. And she clearly has a different status than they do. And um, so it deals with those issues. And of course, there's a lot of pretty awful um, men in the in the story. But what's beautiful about what I think Tony did is she really gets to the heart of sort of the brokenness in those men and how that happened um, instead of just allowing them to sort of be demonized, but not looking at sort of what what were the seeds of all of of their anger and their struggles. And Fathers Incorporated and Kenneth talk really, really beautifully about that, you know, and how that anger can turn inward and outward and um, how that can that, that brokenness can really um, damage the family. So Bluest Eye looks at that as well. It's a very thin book. It's not yeah. big. It's just so powerful. Mm-hmm. And last year was the 50th anniversary of the novel. So that's oh. when we were going, we were going to produce it, but now we've gotten another year to, you know, engage with it, which has been really wonderful. Synchronicity Theater founder and artistic director, Rachel May, and artistic director of the Bronze Lands Film Festival, Deirdre McDonald. The Soar Film Series screens this Saturday. And you can find more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about Atlanta Art on the Beltline live stream events. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producer is Summer Evans, and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. Kevin Rinker deserves special thanks. I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archived stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. 
You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.